Well, good morning, dear church. I love you. I do. And I love uh, teaching and looking into God's word and applying it to our lives and uh, this community life that we enjoy so much together under the banner of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It is all about him. And we celebrate the centrality of Jesus and the gospel. And today we're talking about the application of the gospel, this vertical gospel, to the horizontal uh, relationships of our lives, and specifically the faith community of a local church. Many of you know I love, uh, I love church history, I love history, and uh, in particular, I love World War II history. And uh, anything that's got a little bit of that connected to it is fascinating to me. Uh, so I have a little bit of the combination of those two uh, interests when I talk about uh, the 1930s and you think about how did Nazism uh, run rampant through the highly Lutheran and highly educated Germany of that day. It was a, an astonishing kind of blitzkrieg theologically and uh, ecclesiastically for the church of Germany to also come under Nazism. And uh, the, there's lots of interesting things about that, but one of the fascinating moments in the 1930s was when Adolf Hitler named the new head of the German Lutheran Church and, and named him that at, uh, at the very church in Wittenberg where uh, years before, um, the famous moment where Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the wall of the very same church. In fact, uh, Adolf Hitler named the new head of the German church within feet of the very grave of Martin Luther. He's buried in that church. And so it's just this very sad, frankly, and fascinating moment uh, that, that marks a, a very sad moment in the history of, of the church. By the way, just to note, next Sunday is Reformation Sunday, the 504th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing it, uh, those theses to the, to the door of the church, and I'm sure all of the theologians in our church, the theologically oriented Bethelonians, will be much more about that than what our, we, around here they call it Halloween, but it's Reformation Sunday for us in our hearts. Now, one German theologian was not happy about uh, the, the spread of Nazism, and it was a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a young gun theologian. He was in his 30s, very accomplished, came from a, a, very, a family of distinction in Germany, and he was appalled at Nazism and the church and all the things that were going on there in Germany. And one of the things that, that happened was that there was an underground church known as the Confessing Church uh, in Germany that was really counter-revolutionaries, counter to the Nazis, and they held to the principles of the Reformation, and they uh, sought to exercise a biblical Christianity even within the overall dominance of, of Nazism and now the compromised Lutheran Church. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was uh, contacted, and they asked him to 
to run a seminary, an underground seminary, kind of in a remote location. And so he agreed to do that. And there at that seminary was a small number of, of men training for ministry, and he taught them. But he, it, was, it was more than a seminary. Because they were in isolation, they lived in real community with one another. And uh, Bonhoeffer was, yes, the president of the seminary, but he was really kind of the pastor of the seminary and the spiritual leader of this group of, of uh, men training for ministry. And they loved each other. This was not an Ivy League kind of seminary situation. They were under persecution. There was threats against them. And it was while Bonhoeffer was at, uh, at this seminary and leading this seminary that he wrote a Christian classic entitled Life Together. And the subtitle is The Classic, the classic Exploration of Faith in Community. And uh, this little book, every time I read portions of it or read it again, I've probably read this many times over the years, I always read it and I think to myself, this is what we want. Like, this is what we want here at Bethel Church. And in our hearts, I think so many of us, this is what we crave is this level of life and community with one another that is real and genuine and authentic, life on life kind of, of living. Bonhoeffer wrote this, and uh, it's read to this day. Uh, a few years later, sadly, he was, uh, he was executed by hanging just weeks prior to the Allies coming and liberating the camp that he would have been at. Oh, what he could have written if he would have lived and uh, lived all these years. But this little book is a, a treasure. And uh, when I get to the end of this message, I'm gonna read a quote from it, okay? So you'll know I'm almost done when I get to the quote from this book. So we're in this Habits of Grace series, uh, Rhythms of Life, Healthy Spiritual Rhythms of Life that place us within the channel of God's grace that uh, changes us and sustains us in our walk and makes us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And last week we looked at Hebrews chapter 10, uh, and here's what we, we looked at. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And we, we looked at the fact that every single Christian is in desperate need of the kind of nourishment that comes when we are in proximity with other Christians. We call that fellowship. It is when our, our friendships are spiritual and they move into the level of fellowship. Our conversation is about the game and the kids and the weather, etc. but it is also about what God's doing in my life and praying for one another and this spiritual kind of atmosphere that Christians have when they come together. When we do not come together, when we do not have vital relationships with other Christians, we are the ones who suffer from that. And one of the explanations for the anemic faith walk of so many professing Christians is they don't have any other vital Christian relationships in their life. It is a habit of grace, a channel of grace that is lacking and therefore our spiritual walk suffers from it. And so when we think about the local church then and we think about the habits of grace to realize that the church is the Amazon.com of habits of grace. 
It is a place where everything you could need is found in a local church. Here we have the preaching of God's word and the teaching of God's word. Here it is that we have uh, worship and praise and singing. Here it is where we are praying with one another and supporting one another. It is here that we have the word of God and the spirit and the sacraments and all these things. Like the, the local church, like Amazon, where anything you could need is found in this one location, the church is like that. And that is why a local church, no matter who you are, even Dietrich Bonhoeffer, is a place that God uses in our life and accesses in our life the things that grow us in our spiritual lives. And it's one reason that we should indeed treasure the local church and treasure our local church. So let's talk about habits that refresh. And, and today I'm continuing somewhat on the Hebrews 10 uh, theme. And uh, I wanna talk about some other aspects of the local church that are critical for our faith walk. And here is one that is no surprise. It is the nourishment of the Lord's table. The nourishment of the Lord's table. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received, by the way, he writes this to the Corinthians who are making a mess of the practice of the Lord's Supper. They were, they were viewing it as a big feast. They, they, the, the rich people were getting there and eating ahead of the poor people. It was divisive. It was just a mess. And uh, so he writes this to correct them and to say, this is how to do it. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now Paul adds this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until he returns. Now, we could do a whole sermon on this. We have in the past. I'm gonna have a little brevity here. But the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table or communion, these are all synonyms in, in the church, they are all referring to the same, what is known as ordinance of the church. We believe in two ordinances of the church, the Lord's Supper and baptism. I'm gonna get to baptism here in a minute. Uh, but the, the Lord established this in the upper room and said, do this in remembrance of me. Why do we have the Lord's Supper? Because Jesus told us to do this in remembrance of him. And the Lord's Supper, or the Lord's Table, has for 2,000 years been practiced by every biblical denomination, every biblical church has highly valued the Lord's Supper. Now there are varying opinions about it and some little distinctions, uh, you know, it means this, it means that. For us here, our teaching position is that the symbols, that the, the elements, the bread and the cup, are emblematic or symbolic of what Jesus did on the cross for us. The bread broken, his body broken for us. Uh, the, the, the juice, a symbol of the blood shed for the remission of our sins. Uh, that they, we don't believe that these become the body of Christ or that the presence of Christ is in and through. This is, these are other positions in, in uh, the broader church. We believe that they are emblematic or symbolic of these realities, but they are representative of the presence of Christ. 
The Lord's Supper is, in a sense, like having dinner with Jesus, spiritually. We are reenacting, as we take the bread and the cup, we are reenacting the, the very moment that we first became Christians. I am receiving into my body, like believing, only viscerally, through my mouth and into my, into my bowels, I am receiving the truth of Jesus. It is a physical picture of the spiritual reality that every person who is actually saved has done in their life and in a sense continues to do, continues to do through the Lord's Supper. Now, on the surface, you might look at this, like if you're a kid here and you hear that, hey, we're having uh, supper at the church, you get excited about that. You're like, all right, uh, I, I love me some church uh, pot roast uh, and, and, and some church uh, food, and so I'm excited about that. But then you get to the Lord's Supper and it can be a little disappointing, can it? Because there's not a lot of food there. Like if you're trying to eat this in order to satisfy your appetite, you are gonna be severely disappointed. Who would call this a supper? I'll tell you who will call it a supper. A mature Christian will call it a supper. And the reason that they do is that the soul doesn't measure a feast by the size of the table, but by the size of the truth. May I say that sentence again? I have it highlighted here. Do not forget to say that sentence. A mature Christian measures, doesn't measure a feast by the size of the table, but by the size of the truth. And in that measurement, the Lord's Supper is the greatest, biggest feast that any of us will ever have. Because the size of the truth is enormous. It represents the one saving gospel. It represents all of my hope for my sins being forgiven. It represents all of my like, personal religion and faith. It, is, it is, is embodied in these two little elements. They represent the work of Jesus in redemption. And so it is effectively a meal a spiritual meal in which my soul is renewed by allowing the taste of the bread and the taste of the cup to reenact for me again my own receiving Jesus as my savior. Perhaps you could view it as a kind of renewing of my vows again and again and again, personalizing and receiving the gospel. Now, I want you to note that this is also something that we do in the fellowship of other Christians. This is why I'm not personally a fan of people who just kind of do this on their own. You know, it's halftime of the game, let's get the Kool-Aid and the Doritos, and let's have communion. I'm not a fan of that. This is something that is given to the church. The church is called to administer and administrate the Lord's Supper and should be done within or under at least the guidance and the authority of, of the church. Now I often get asked this question, why do we do communion once a month? And here is the answer to that question, because that's the way we've always done it. 
And in a church, everybody loves that answer, right? Oh, well, then it's fine. That's the way that we've always done it. You know what? We've always done it even before I came here. The practice was once a month. Now, do we have a verse in the Bible that says how often we're to do it? No, we don't. There are some churches that do it once a year. There are some churches that do it every Sunday. Our practice is to do it every uh, once a month and Good Friday, and then occasionally some other special um, uh, moments that we will also have, we will have communion. Uh, but again, we don't really have a verse in the Bible that tells us how often we're to do it. And uh, if you were to press me, you know, do you think we should do it less or we should do it more? I'd probably vote for more. But at the same time, I think that we are well within a, uh, a healthy habit and rhythm of, of doing it. Now, I'll tell you, one of the, my most precious pastoral experiences is when we have one of our, our folks that are on their deathbed. And I have a little, I should, maybe next service I'll, I'll actually show my, I have a little traveling communion set that, uh, that I will prepare a few elements and I will often go to their home or hospital, whatever it is, and I'll ask, would you like to have communion one last time? And it is very precious to see a dear saint and to realize that for them, this is their last supper, okay? This is the last supper for them. And to see them take that bread and to take that cup and to realize that they're about to stand before the one of whom these elements represent. It is a dear, precious, it's not a last rite, it's, it's none of that, we don't believe that, but it is so very sweet. And this is, I think the more you mature as a Christian, the dearer and sweeter and maybe more reverent you get about the Lord's Supper. I remember as a kid in my church growing up, you know, sometimes they would do it and I'd be sitting in the back with my friends and I would, I would see my friends, they would get the cup and they'd kind of be, you know, toasting each other and, and all this and something in me even then was like, that ain't right. And now, from my perspective now, it's really not right. It is a very sacred gift that Jesus gave to us. And the more we go and the more we grow, the more sacred it becomes to us. It is a means of grace. It is a, a blessing to us. And uh, so we, we treasure the gospel meal of the Lord's Supper and look forward to it every time. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. The second ordinance of the church is baptism. And, and you know, we talk about this so often. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, on baptism, even though we very much treasure baptism. We often say it's an outward sign of an inward change. Uh, it is commanded by Jesus in Matthew 28. It is a sign that, uh, you know, this person is, that is being baptized. It is a sign to them and to us that uh, they are saying, I am following Jesus. And it's a great encouragement. I mean, seeing people baptized itself within the church is a means of grace because here's somebody else giving testimony of the same thing that I believe. And there they are getting all wet and everything. Like, they're serious about this. In some ways, I think that's, uh, you know, <laughs> one reason I like immersion, I got a lot of reasons I like immersion, but, uh, you know, if you're gonna get baptized, it shows you're, you're all in, okay? You're all in. You're all wet, and you're all in. 
I like immersion. Hard to get an amen to this from this group. <laughs> Perhaps it's because you were all sprinkled as you walked in here to this service. That doesn't, you're all wet right now, maybe. You're like, that's not so good, being all wet, but it is good. All right, thirdly is discipline. Now, we don't like this one as much, do we? If you were to ask my, my daughters, do you like discipline? No. And even as adults, we're kind of like, no. We don't like discipline, but it is a means of grace. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. Discipline, okay? This is a Bible term. This is a Bible truth. It is an unpleasant thing. None of us pray, God, bring more discipline in my life. And yet, the Bible urges us to see the discipline of the Lord as a sign that God loves us. How often do we have that if you're a parent, you know? I'm doing this, I'm, I'm, I'm disciplining you because I love you. And, and the child has a hard time interpreting that, right? It doesn't feel like love to me, daddy. If only they knew that, you know, I'm crying on the inside more than they're crying on the outside. It's because we love our children that we discipline them. And God is a faithful father who disciplines every, every son or daughter that, that he loves, that is actually one of his children. So as we think about discipline, to realize that God loves us enough to discipline us in our sins, to discipline our sins out of us. And sometimes it's hard to know, you know, am I experiencing discipline right now? Because not every trial is the result of sin in my life. Think of the life of Jesus, for example. He never sinned, and yet the Father disciplined him. The Father brought trials in his life, severe trials, not as a result of sin, for sure. And so if you're in a trial right now, you shouldn't automatically assume that God is doing this in my life because of a sin in my life. But you should also not, not consider that. Did I say the double negatives right there? I'm not sure. What I mean to say is you should probably consider the possibility of that. Regardless, we should all have a kind of surrender in our life. If you're like, what do I do? How do I handle it? Here's what I'd recommend. Honestly, go before the Lord and say, Lord, this is a trial in my life. I want it to bear good fruit. Embrace James 1. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials and temptations. God, if this is a trial, I embrace what you're teaching me in it. If this is a discipline, I want to learn from it. Refine me. May your will be done in my life. And then let God sort out whether it's the discipline or a trial <laughs> because sometimes it's hard to know. But all the things that God brings into our life, he brings because he loves us, because he is good, as we sang earlier in the service. These are all signs that he loves us. And if, if you go off in sin and you just float along in sin and there is no discipline at all, you might want to think, does he love me? Because I would think he would have brought something by now. He disciplines every son that is truly his son. Now, added to this, we also have the role of church discipline. And church discipline is the calling of Scripture that if a member of our church is in a willful sin and refuses to repent and refuses to come under the uh, discipleship of the elders of the church, 
that we have a responsibility to remove that person as a means of grace in their life with the hope that God will use it to bring them to repentance. And here's what Hebrews 12 says about all of this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so therefore, we are pro-discipline, especially in other people's lives. All right. So there's a few thoughts on, on uh, means of grace within uh, the church. I wanna talk with you about church membership as well. Okay, what are habits of grace that God uses in my life to make me into the likeness of Christ? I believe church membership is one of those, okay? Church membership. As many of you know, if I could just biographically share, as many of you know, I was single for a really long time. Really, really long time. I got married when I was 44 years old. That's a long time being uh, single. And now, as a married man, I look back on my singleness, and it's very obvious to me some of the differences between a dating relationship and a married relationship, okay? So when you're dating, this is how it goes, unless things have significantly changed in the last few years. When you're dating, the other person is in it as long as they want to be in it. As long as they think that you maybe are interesting, uh, flawless, make them look good, at least pay for the meals or whatever it is, you're just in it as long as you wanna be in it. That's dating. Uh, the first sign of trouble though, or conflict, or you realize the other person is actually a sinner, boom. Off people can go in search of the person that has no flaws whatsoever in them. What happens though when conflict comes in marriage? And single people, listen to me very carefully because you're probably underestimating how important this is. What happens when conflict happens in marriage? You have to work it out. You have to work it out. The covenant forces you to deal with problems. And this results in confessing and forgiving and confessing and forgiving and confess 10,000 forgivenesses. And that's just the honeymoon. <laughs> over and over and over and over and over again. And on top of that, you have to respect your spouse's perspective on things. And they have to respect your perspective on things. And what I'm saying is, it is the context of covenantal love and commitment that forces the person to be confronted with who they are, the relationship and the challenges, the fact that I am committed here is part of what brings about change in a way that dating never does. Like, there are some people, they just serially date, and they never change. But marriage, marriage is a massive change agent, okay? Single people, beware, okay? If you're not about that, don't get married. 
I wrote down this. These people function like long-time, the long-time bachelor who's never quite able to commit to anyone. You know, like the bachelor pastor types, especially. And what I'm getting at here is that growth in godliness, in a way, requires a covenantal context and a covenantal commitment. And there are many people who simply date their church. They just date their church. And what I'm encouraging today is that some of you need to get off eHarmony church dating. Take a deep breath and just get married to a church. Just do it, okay? And if it's not our church, marry some church somewhere. Biblical gospel preaching, of course, but marry a church. Become a member, and that's really what membership at a church is. It is making that fellowship that I'm experiencing official. Making it real, you're putting a ring on it, if you will. And that covenantal church membership will be a lever in your life to bring about good and godly change in your life in ways that not being official and just dating the church will never happen. It is through commitment that God matures and grows and builds our character into the likeness of Christ. And so I, I speak to the church daters here and online, get married, become a member. Perhaps we should, uh, around here, celebrate anniversaries like that. Celebrating 10 years of marriage to Bethel Church are the following, and just up on the screen. Brad, can we make that happen next Sunday, if you don't mind? Let's get on that, okay? But I think it would give a sense and a real more biblical sense of what it means to actually be a part of a local church. By the way, I'm just gonna mention this. If you would like to join this church, if you wanna get married here, to the church that is, we have a class called Discover Bethel. It's coming up Saturday, November 6th, 8.30 in the morning, uh, full breakfast provided. And that is not at all a bribe. No, not at all. So I'm encouraging the grace that God brings through a commitment to a local church family. It is a blessing, okay? Now, the rest of my message, I just have some tips, okay? Tips for healthy community around here. How do we do this? What do we need? I mentioned this one earlier in the service. Let's start with the ministry of presence. Okay, presence. I could quote verses here, but how about song lyrics? You just call out my name. You know wherever I am, I'll come running. Oh, yes. <laughs> just to see you again. Winter, spring, summer, or fall. All you gotta do is call, and I'll be there. Oh, yes. You've got a friend. Do, 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 do. Da, na, na, na. Is that in the hymnal? If it's not, it should be. 
Because that is practicing the, the power and the blessing of presence in one another's lives. Friends, your presence means something, okay? It means, it means something in our corporate gatherings. It means something in your small group. It means something when somebody is in duress. It means something when you're in duress. We are called to an embodied experience of community with one another. It's the power of presence. I'm convinced that being there for one another is 99% of this ministry. You might be like, well, I don't know what I would say. They're not gonna remember what you say. They won't. But they will never forget that you were there for them. There is a power to presence with one another. It certainly means something in crisis, but it means something just in the regular flow of life, right? To, to be a part of it. it, it means that I am endorsing this, I am participating in this, I am not, I'm not a casual observer, I'm not in the stands sort of cheering on other people who are actually doing ministry. I'm on the field, like I'm in the game. I'm a part of this. Being there, present, is a huge blessing to other people and also to ourselves. Now, I say this, and, and, and I, I want to address uh, a reality that we've had for the last year and a half. So a year and a half ago, pandemic hits, all the things happen. You all know what happened with that. And we very quickly shift to the online stream, which to this day we are profoundly thankful for. I am profoundly thankful for our tech team and, and worship department that basically are producing a live show every seventh day uh, and doing an excellent job with it, I might add. We're very thankful for the quality of the online stream. We're also very thankful, you can clap for that for sure. I'm also thankful for how this has provided a kind of niche for certain groups of people that allows them to remain kind of, a part, kind of a part of this and to know what's going on and some of the blessings of watching this online. And, and these groups I would include the COVID concerned, and we have many still, many still like, like that. We have shut-ins who for whatever reason just simply can't be present. And we also have people who are checking out our church online before they come in person. In fact, I met a couple right before this service who basically told me just that. We were watching online and now we're here in, in person. And I think the online stream is a great kind of on-ramp for people who are kind of newer or wanting to maybe check something out before they become a part of it. Praise God for that. However, if we look at the New Testament and we think about what Jesus envisioned regarding his church and a local church, is the digital church experience, does it rise to that level? And as much as we want to affirm great reasons for the online stream, there is also a very not so great reason to be online. And maybe if I can just stare into the camera right now and to say that 
If you are COVID concerned, if you're a shut-in, if you're new, if there's some other mitigating circumstance, love it, praise God, we're so glad that you are joining us online. But if you are online because you like church in your PJs, or if you're online because you don't like the entanglements of Christian relationships, or some other sort of my comfort kind of reason, I'm trying to woo you, if I could reach through that camera and just sort of woo you off of the couch and into community. This is a part of how God grows us. And the gathering and the presence with one another is a means of grace in our life. And I want to urge you to consider We need to practice the presence of people. And that means that we need your presence, and the New Testament would urge you to realize that you need our presence, because there is something about embodied with one another-ness that happens that cannot happen on Zoom or some other digital approach. So we love you, okay, love you, but I'm, I'm trying to woo you, okay? Trying to woo you. Hope to see you soon. This is the ministry of presence, okay? Let's talk secondly about the ministry of, and not very long on this one, but the ministry of absorption, and the ministry of listening. Here's James 1. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Would not all of our relationships be better if we were doing more of that right there, okay? And we often minimize what it means to simply listen to one another. Bonhoeffer talks about in his book about there's a kind of listening that isn't really listening. I'm just trying to think of what I'm gonna say when you take a breath, okay? I'm not actually engaging in what you have to say. I am trying to win the argument. I'm, I'm trying to, for you to understand my, pers- my perspective, I don't wanna understand yours. And yet, one of the blessings, if properly done, is simply listening, okay? Just listening to one another. Have you ever had the experience where somebody's in distress and they say, I gotta talk to you, and they sit down and they pour their heart out to you and you just listen, and, and when they're done, they say, wow, talking with you has been such a blessing, thank you so much, and they, you know, they walk away and you're like, <laughs> I didn't do anything. We could think we didn't do anything, but we actually did do something. We gave them our attention. We listened to them. And listening is a kind of love that all of us should probably get better at, amen? Okay, amen. So what a wonderful ministry that can be. And thirdly, we have what I'm calling the ministry of authenticity. James 5, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. One of the dynamics in a local church community that is, that is vibrant and spirit-filled and all this is that there is a kind of Uh, there's a a kind of atmosphere of authenticity that the gospel enables us to have with one another where I don't have to feel like I have to be pretentious uh, or that I have to hide because in the church, every person that you talk to is also a sinner and has acknowledged that. 
I mentioned last week, and somebody said this, that the church is the only organization that you have to confess you're a sinner to get into, and then you spend the rest of your time trying to convince everybody you're not. If you are a part of this church, it means that you have publicly said, I am a great sinner. And that acknowledgement creates now a context where I don't have to pretend I'm not. The church should be a safe place for us to be authentic with one another. Now let me address one fallacy that many people hold to, and that is, if I am honest and authentic with somebody else, I am afraid that when they hear about my struggle or my sin or my challenge, they are going to think less of me. Are you with me? This is a fear we have. In reality, it is the opposite of that. When I am authentic and real with somebody else, most of the time, they leave thinking more of us. The kind of humility that it takes, and frankly, godliness and maturity it takes to be authentic, does something in that other person. It inspires them. And it inspires them to be more authentic in their own life. Maybe even to share something in that context. You know, I struggle with that as well. So let me give you a great example of this, okay? So two weeks ago, we were talking about contemplation and meditation and how this can be a, a way for us to get rid of this, remember, stinking thinking. So many of us have stinking thinking, and we need to renew our minds. And I shared with you, I said, listen, I gotta be honest with you, I have thoughts that come into my brain that are embarrassing to me. They're like terrible. I said, they're like from the pit of hell. They're the kind of thoughts, if they put it on the, on the screen, you would never want me to be your pastor. That's what I said. Now, here I am two weeks later, still employed. <laughs> you know what I got the week after that from people, from that statement? I got all kinds of notes, mostly from men, saying, I am so glad that you said that because I have terrible thoughts too. This is part of the power of authenticity with one another is that as we, as we share with each other in the context where we're all admitting we're sinners anyway, right? Now I can feel free to share the kinds of things in my own heart that by sharing them, in a sense, helps me to gain victory over them. In a way that hiding them, it festers, okay? I bring the light, I shine the light on it by sharing it with another fellow sinner, and that experience together actually helps me overcome the sin in my heart and in my life. And more of this could only be helpful. And authenticity itself is a ministry to one another. Hiding is not a ministry to one another. Pharisaical sort of uh, you know, uh, play acting is not a ministry to one another. But being real 
is. And I'm urging us to a higher level of authenticity with one another. What a blessing that would be. Now that said, uh, there's a well-known article for pastors, and here's the title, I love the title of this. The title is, Naked Pastors Are Distracting. <laughs> and it's an entire article written about a, I don't know, phenomenon, but a, a problem in the church where there's a kind of emotional manipulation that you can do, and certainly pastors can do, by sort of doing the tell-all all the time. And in a way, rather than drawing attention to Jesus and his grace and work in my life, I'm actually drawing attention to myself as a pastor. And I share this because many of you are watching YouTube videos and you're listening to preachers here, there, and yonder, and it's something to be aware of right here in our own pulpit. To beware of a kind of manipulation that this kind of sort of faux authenticity can have, drawing attention to the preacher instead of attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. So beware of pastors and teachers and even church members who might employ this. So beware, dear sheep. Now, so let's review. What are some tips for better community together? The ministry of presence. Just be in there with one another, okay? Embodied Christianity. We have the ministry of listening and caring for what other people are having to say. And then we have the ministry of authenticity, a kind of freedom the gospel creates in Christian relationships where I don't have to pretend I'm not a sinner. And by sharing, it actually gives me strength to overcome the challenges in my life. Which brings me to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you are like, yes. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Listen to what he writes. Again, he's under, under Nazi rule, Nazi persecution, threats all around, living in a little community, a little seminary. He says this, I am a brother to another person through what Jesus Christ did for me and to me. The other person became a brother to me through what Jesus Christ did for him. This fact that we are brethren only through Jesus Christ is of immeasurable significance. My brother is rather that other person who has been redeemed by Christ, delivered from his sin and called to faith and eternal life. Not what a man is in himself as a Christian, his spirituality and piety constitutes the basis of our community. What determines our brotherhood is what that man is by reason of Christ. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. I have community with others, and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we do have one another, holy and for eternity. To realize, friends, that the church and the people in the church are our true forever family. And praise God 
I get to do eternity with you. Okay, amen.